I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. This episode is going to be our Season 5 recap. Just looking back at the past 16 episodes and uh, talking about what themes have emerged, what sort of things we've learned, you know, what what made sense, what didn't. I guess to start us off, um, the one that's freshest in my mind is um, the Martin Gurry book, uh, The Revolt of the Public. And I thought it kind of matched up with Tim Carney's Alienated in America, which we read a few months ago, right at the beginning of the season. Just both of them talking about the failure of expertise, you know, and the failure of those who we thought were in charge and were going to run things and everyone would benefit and things would be good. Carney kind of went out into the places where people didn't believe that anymore and looked at, you know, looked at why and looked at why, especially they were voting for Trump in the 2016 primaries when, you know, I mean, it's hard to think of it now after he's was president for four years, but he was a real outlier and he didn't really fit in with the rest of the party. So Carney wanted to figure out why are these people who were, solid Republicans, a lot of them for years, turning to somebody who's saying something pretty different than what had been the party standard forever. And, uh, and Gorey kind of gets at that from a more global perspective, looking at sort of the breakdown of, of elite leadership around the world and the diffusion of news sources and information sources that made it both possible to see that failure more clearly and also to really focus on it and and think about new ways and different ways and how we should not just settle for what had been a pretty comfortable establishment. Yeah. I mean, Gurry's pretty brutal when it comes to critiquing the elites and the track record. What's what's the track record oh, you know, over the last 20 years of American leadership? Well, it's, you know, he points out it's the Iraq war. It's uh, the financial crisis, it's this bungling of, of COVID in so many different ways. And I think at, at risk of repeating myself from, from a, a recent episode, I think, you know, the CDC has just failed on every level when it comes to, when it comes to COVID and, you know, Gurry's, he says, my, my thesis is a simple one. We're caught between an old world which is decreasingly able to sustain us intellectually and spiritually that in basically every institution and the elites have failed on their own terms. They said they would bring us prosperity and economic success. And, uh, you know, you and I, Kyle are basically elites. I mean, we, yeah. we both went to law schools and, you know, you, you write for fancy newspapers and, <laughs> and I'm a, you know, dirty rotten corporate lobbyist and, so we've done well in mm-hmm. in the the meritocratic race and probably are, you know, if you were going to bundle like a, a top third of the, you know, quote unquote elites, we're, you know, we're probably close to it, you know, even though we don't have any particular power. And you got, you lost your job during the financials crisis, which I'm yeah. sure was horrible. 
Yeah, it wasn't but you, great. But, but you've managed to land back on your feet and do pretty well, I think, right? Yeah, and, eventually. I mean, it, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, I, I think that's the danger of leaning too hard into the pessimism is that you forget that in America there is always second chances and third chances and, and there's still a lot of jobs here and a lot of entrepreneurs here and new businesses are starting. It's not all doom and gloom. Yeah. I also live in the, I also live in the big city though, that, you know, is more a source of jobs than some other areas of the country where a lot of stuff has moved away. And it really, like Carney kind of chronicled, a lot of the stuff has just kind of crumbled in the wake of those jobs leaving. Yeah. I think, I think that's the point is you, you had the education, you had the credentials, you live in a big city, so you found the opportunity. And I, and I think part of Gurry's point and definitely much of Carney's point is a whole lot of people didn't yeah. land on their feet afterwards. You know, they, they lost that factory job and they got a new job that was not any better. It was much worse probably, or they didn't even go back to work. Instead, they got on disability mm-hmm. and some, you know, got hooked on opioids or whatever. And so it's kind of like the, the elites screw up and somehow still maybe not right away, but ultimately land on their feet. But it's the, it's the other folks who put, um, put trust in them. You know, like two thirds of this country does not have a bachelor's degree is, is the truth of it. And, you know, Carney describes those supporters of Trump. Now the media will say, will characterize Trump supporters as basically anyone who's ever voted Republican in, in their lives. But Carney, what he was looking at is those supporters of Trump in the primaries. So hmm. that, that would be as opposed to primary voters in favor of Cruz or Rubio and so forth. And, you know, what he found is these guys, they were not really political. They were not very ideological at all. They didn't hold, you know, strong beliefs about uh, taxes and and debt deficit um, policy. You know, they didn't hold strong views about a lot of things except some of these cultural issues. But what they really had was just, just some real anger because he says, as a general rule, you can use Trump's electoral strength in the early GOP primaries as a proxy for pessimism. Trump country is the places where hope is low. In contrast, where he, Trump did not do well vis-a-vis, you know, in, in relation to Rubio and Cruz and, and Jeb Bush, so forth. Well, these are the places where, where you had highly educated elites, you know, tight knit community, religious communities, you know, government or uh, churches, local governments that are active, country clubs, garden. In other words, the places where people had a lot of institutions, they had a lot of community, and um, probably a lot of bachelor's degrees and graduate degrees, and people who could kind of weather the storm. Versus the Trump country is those who who couldn't, haven't been able to weather the storm, and just pretty mad about it. Yeah, and they haven't got answers from anybody in either party, and they were looking for something new. And I, I think there was an article back in 2016 by uh, Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal who talked, divided people into the protected and the unprotected. And I think that's kind of, she, I think she was one of the first ones to put it in print, kind of what you were just saying now. You know, as some people, yeah, if you if you worked on Wall Street at Lehman Brothers, you know, during the crash, you were going to be out of a job because that firm went bust. But you weren't ruined. You still had your degree. You still had your connections. You still had whatever experience you gained there. And, you know, at that point, you were into the uh, the right crowd, the right credentials. There was, you'd fall, you'd lose money, 
And, you know, typically in a big crash, rich people lose a bigger percent of their income than the poor, but they've got a lot more to fall back on. And then it goes right back up again. So it's, it's that, that feeling of protection is, I think part of it's do it's, it's, you know, chicken and egg thing. People without those institutions in their community feel unprotected, but you know, which came first? Is it what made those institutions fall? Which it's hard to, it's hard to get to the root causes, but what it, we can look at the facts as they are and you can say people who don't have these strong communities, people where these institutions have withered, where jobs have left and there's nothing to replace them, they're unprotected. And when you feel unprotected, it's a lot more tempting to look to a, a protector. Mm-hmm. That's it's like when, when they start giving out all this, uh, like all the stimulus and the child benefit things that are going on now, even to middle class people. What, what irks me is that to be middle class is to not need the handout. That's what that's supposed to mean, is that you stand on your own. But for people who can't stand on their own, they're going to look to somebody who's going to help them up. And whether that person is really going to help them up or he's selling snake oil. I mean, this is the whole, it's like the whole basis of, of feudalism. It's, you know, lands were unsettled and wild and some some knight with a few men at arms would say, these peasants, look, I'll, I'll protect you from bandits and, you know, foreign invaders and everybody else, but uh, you got to work my land two days a week, you know, and kick up a portion of your income to me. And that, that, that built a system. That's how feudalism worked is that there was an exchange of duties. We kind of have like an informal idea of that within democracy sometimes is people who feel like they can't protect themselves. There's too much. They can't weather the storm. There's too much going on. Everything's falling apart. Then you get somebody saying, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to sweep, sweep clean, drain the swamp, get everything fixed. It's a lot easier to go for that when you're already down and out and you don't see any way out. So I, I, mm-hmm. I thought I thought Carney really captured that. And, you know, too many, a lot of national reporters captured that in a real condescending way. I feel like he kind of tried to understand people, you know, even people different than him. I mean, he talked about his own community as being a lot more solid and, you know, well off and whatnot. Um, but I, I, I thought he really got into the, really tried to stand in people's shoes and say, you know, I, I, I understand where you're coming from and it's not unreasonable to make these choices from where you are. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, he, even though he wasn't making those same choices from where he stood. Yeah, I agree. And he kind of identified s- strong institutions and civil society as kind of the, the missing piece. And seems that like in, uh, in the spaces that were less supportive of Trump and had more success, they, they seem to have stronger institutions, you know, churches and clubs and sort of thing. But um, I, I think as a corollary, uh, we also read the uh, Roger Scruton this this uh, this season, which we both enjoyed very much. I think, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, he he focuses a lot on identity, and not for not from a identity politics standpoint, but from uh, uh, who who is the we? We need a we. We need a, a collective us. We need a we need a, a collective understanding of who we are, and for him, that means we need boundaries. We need. Uh, demarcating lines where our country starts and you know your country ends, that kind of thing. And uh, it's kind of a, a soft nationalism that I think is, I mean, really a major topic of conversation anymore in um, political discourse right now is, is nationalism and what does it mean exactly. And uh, those on the left would say that it's you know pure fascism and and leads to uh, uh, you know horrible atrocities. But then the others on the right are making the argument that 
no, what we're really talking about, we're not talking about uh, uh, kind of, you know, Nazism. We're talking about having uh, an understanding of where you belong and, and something that binds us together as a people. And I thought Scruton did a really great job kind of describing that. He says, for ordinary people living in free association with their neighbors, nation simply means the historical identity and continuing allegiance that unites them in the body politic. It's a first-person plural of settlement. He says a shared identity takes the sting from disagreement and makes rational discussion possible. It's a foundation of any compromise. And I mean, I think there's really a lot to be said with that because right now we say uh, nobody can agree on the same facts. To me, that seems like less relevant than the fact that nobody can agree on what we have in common, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think people on our side of, politics or you know like that ben shapiro line about uh, facts don't care about your feelings that's true as facts go right but we don't live by facts alone you know i mean a country isn't made of facts a lot of you know a lot of what family is what community is and what what country is is made of is made of emotion and made of those ties that are not quantifiable and i thought in the, in the packer article we read last episode he talked about america's divided in these different groups and the group that I think he identifies the most with was what he called smart America, sort of what people call neoliberal or, or you know, that sort of Bill Clinton kind of uh, Democrat. He he wrote that they don't they don't really understand patriotism because they don't need it. It doesn't right. do anything. Yeah. It doesn't do anything for them. They're doing OK. And it's the same kind of protected, unprotected vibe. Like they don't they've got enough satisfaction in their jobs and in their wealth and in their international connections and and. You know, citizen of the world kind of vibe that maybe they don't see the point of saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day at school. They don't see the point of you know singing the Star Spangled Banner before every baseball game. You know, it's like uh, it it seems weird and old fashioned to them, but to to a lot of people, that's that does mean something in the same way that family means something. Mm-hmm. The same way that a hometown or an old school means something. You know, it's. That ability, like Scruton's talking about, to be a part of a, a, a first-person plural. That's that's so, it's hard to quantify. I mean, you get it in sports, too, in a way. Like conservatism, it is it is hard to reduce to a, a logical proof, but it's definitely real. And it's definitely something that, when it fades, it leaves people lacking. And they, they, they look for something else. In the same way that when churches fall away, or people fall away from them, uh, like like Chesterton said, it's it's, like, it's not that they don't believe in God anymore; is that they believe in something else in, in place of God. I, I mangled that quote, but you know, you get what I'm saying. It's mm-hmm. uh, looking for everybody's looking for a creed, looking for an answer, you know, rules of life, and you know, patriotism is part of that. Religion is part of that. I think the part of that big divide we're seeing in like the, like Packer talked about is is people who who feel that in their bones and people who don't, you know, people who, when they see the American flag, it means something about our history and about our culture and about our people. And for other people, it's just, you know, like Obama said about American exceptionalism, he said, sure, I believe in American exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism and the British believe in British exceptionalism, which is to say he doesn't believe in it. (laughs) You know, it's just, if everybody's exceptional, nobody's exceptional, but I think a lot of people do feel that it's like, well, you know, they're, they're so broad minded that they can't even, uh, it's like the old saying, you know, liberal is somebody who won't take his own side in the fight. 
<laughs> I mean, it's a patronizing pat on the head, you know. And yeah. Let's let's say that everyone that the, every country is will will follow this sort of path of absolute relativism, and, and there there is no culture or country or people that's any any better than any other in, in any objective sense. Um, I, I guess my reaction to that is, even if that's true, like so what? You know, can't yeah. can't can't we be proud of our own family? Can't we? Can I, can I be extra proud of my brother? Or yeah, my own son, or you know, my countrymen in the Olympics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's I don't I don't have to look at the report cards to know who's my favorite kid in my in my daughter's class. Like, yeah. You know, it's it's her. It doesn't matter if she's first or last. You know, that's 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 family, and that's that's something that uh, I I think it, it comes to be lacking these days. I mean, part of it's because we interact so much online and less in person that. And that's especially been true in 2020 and into 2021 as we're all hiding out from COVID that you, you kind of forget how to talk to people and how much give and take and compromise there is in real life, even over things that aren't important. You know, uh, just when you talk to your neighbor, you might have some extreme views and so does he, but you find a way to get along because, you know, he's your neighbor and he's, he's just wrong. He's not a jerk. You know, he's yeah. just, he's just wrong. That's okay. You know, <laughs> That's part of that family, that, that neighborhood community vibe. Packer article was insightful in a lot of ways. I mean, I didn't, I didn't care for all the ways he characterized conservatism. It seemed cynical, but he was he was right in the way that we divide ourselves because we're just looking past each other and talking completely different languages. Mm-hmm. Well, we also read a couple of books on uh, on the free market. Foremost, Adam Smith, the godfather of the the, the free market and the invisible hand. He was the first to say, it's not a pile of gold that makes you rich. He says, domestic, gross domestic product is the real measurement of national wealth. And productivity gains are made possible by specializing. Two, uh, two huge innovations that, that really changed the world. Two things. Of, first of all, a king just building a, a, a big Uncle Scrooge money bin. That's, not, that's actually not wealth. And by collecting that and the mercantilist uh, philosophy of we're going to take, 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 that actually does not lead to wealth. In fact, it it minimizes it. Instead, what you need to do is have open exchange and free trade. And by doing that, your trading partner, yes, will do well, but so will you. And over time, you both uh, start to do better and better. And in the even if we're not talking about exchange across international boundaries, but just, uh, in a neighborhood or whatever you, he says the next, his next innovation is you focus on specialization and suddenly things become cheaper. You could, one person could make, could, what did he say? He, he said it would take uh, 72 days to make a paper clip or whatever, mm-hmm. a, a pin. But, uh, if you made it in a factory, you could make, you know, thousands of them a week by everyone specializing in, in something. And, and uh, yes, we're, we'll and we'll pick up a little bit on this on Mercuser or whatever. Then the, the Marxist critique is you've uh, you've alienated the labor because it's you're, they they're no longer connected. Uh, but you know what what you've given them is a way to make a living, and then suddenly that's uh, that lower working class uh, worker can suddenly afford a whole lot more than he used to or she used to. You know, Walmart is pretty cheap. And what is that? What that means is people can have a higher standard of living. And by specializing, the that's the that's the path to get there. 
which I thought is just really cool. And when you're reading Adam Smith's words, it just, it just jumps out at you at how, how amazing this system is and, and, and really how much, uh, how much has developed the world for the, for such amazing good over the last couple hundred years. Right. And, and reading it too, it, at, at the remove of almost 250 years, it's, it's striking how much that's, he's saying things that in his day were completely new and wild and it, but to us, it, it seems natural. Like, Oh yeah, sure. Both guys, <clears throat> both sides can gain from trade. I don't think, Oh, there's still a lot of people who don't believe that. I, I mean, I think, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters do not believe this. They think if there's a deal, somebody's getting screwed. Trump, Trump does not believe this. Mm-hmm. He, you know, I love the way he called out the uh, some of the bad agreements we made with China because I think a lot of them were bad. I don't think they should ever have been admitted to the World Trade Organization when they weren't a free economy. But the way he talked about trade deficits too, it made you. Th- he's really seeing this as if two people make a deal, somebody's getting screwed and somebody is screwing him. Yeah. Whereas I think Smith recognized what is true is that sometimes. Two people usually two people make a deal and they're both better off. Maybe one is more better off. That could be. I mean, there's there are negotiations and, and these things matter. But in the typical trading arrangement, everybody wins. Everybody gets wealthier, and that's how wealth is created. And what's amazing too is also that, that Smith wrote that in 1776, and then we read some of Jefferson's work writing about the national bank and tariffs and things. And this was only 20 years later, and Jefferson was talking about these ideas as though they were, you know, pretty standard. And it, it's just amazing how much that it, the Enlightenment spread from from Smith and, and others just around around the globe. And, and it became sort of the basis, you know, Jefferson and the other founding fathers fused Smith and Locke together and, and made this, this liberal democratic idea that we're still living in today and it just it it, i kind of wondered at the idea that you know smith had only discovered these things pretty pretty recently and but they're so obviously true once he states them Mm -hmm. and that that's sort of the that's that's how you know an idea is brilliant is nobody thought of it before but once you say it everyone says oh yeah of course that's why this works this all makes sense you know like newton with gravity, you know, and, and oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Things, that's how these, that's why things fall down, you know, but nobody thought of it before. So, I mean, it's not to say like, oh, anyone could have thought of it. They couldn't. Smith was clearly brilliant in this and, but it's so clearly true and, and it so clearly works and has worked that there's no, there's no good challenge to it. And his fundamental insights like you said, they continue to work. It, it, it works today. It, it's given us, it's built the the wealth and our ability to live longer lives across the globe. I mean, in China, their standard of living and their, and their uh, uh, life expectancy has just shot through the roof from, you know, their turn from, from the, from the, a more communist economic system to a more capitalist economic system. It works. And yet we still have to defend these ideas. We still have to fight fight for them. In another book that we read, uh, Hazlitt on man versus the welfare state. I mean, he, it's essentially a, a fight. I mean, the arguments he's making are, are against more, you know, government intrusion or more, more. He says, uh, 
the theory has been fashionable that the cause of all depressions is a lack of purchasing power by the government. You know, so the go- government should boldly step in and increase spending. And uh, it's, so he, he he takes on this uh, Keynesian argument, which you know it's it's not exactly the same, but it's it's still of the same. It's 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 uh, of the same kind. If um, you know, it's it's not completely different. It, it's the kind of the left wing arguments that we can't we can't let the the market operate on its own. Instead, we need to constantly intervene and uh, pick winners and losers and make sure this group is 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 doing better. And and ultimately, you know, like he he just makes a really strong argument. I loved I loved the Hazlitt book, but he just makes a really strong argument about like that just makes us all worse off. You know, all of your interventions. First of all, they almost rarely, they, they, they almost never work. But when, even when they, even if they do, like we're not better off than we would be otherwise. Yeah. And, and as, as inflation's popping up now for the first time in a long time, uh, he was writing in an age where inflation was starting to do the same. It was getting high because of deficit spending on, on the war and on the great society. He, he wrote in uh, 1969. And it's, it's similar now, although they're, the wars are winding down, so there's no reason to be spending as much as we are, but we are. And what do you know? You put more money into the economy, and it's uh, all of a sudden everything costs more. Hazlitt wrote about this, and he, and he wrote about the, the fundamental dishonesty of inflating your currency. Is, is you know, America says we don't repudiate our debts. You know, like some third some third world countries will decide not to pay debts; they declare bankruptcy. Basically, we don't do that. We honor our debts, but we honor them with fake money, right. <laughs> which is, it's a partial repudiation. If you, uh, if you're getting, if you borrowed at the low rates in the nineties, or if the government borrowed at the low rates in the nineties, and then they're paying it back now, you know, that money is going to be worth a little less than what you, you thought. And it's, you know, nobody's crying for the bankers. I, I get it, but it's it's still wrong and it, and it comes down to all of us and like the like the uh, stock market bankruptcies of, of 08 and the credit crunch it's it's the little fellow's going to pay the price the guy who's saving to buy a home this year is not loving this inflation business mm-hmm. yeah if, you, if you've got something that you know if you're trying to make a down payment well forget it you need, you need twice as much now in some of these cities and it's and it's it's not even just the big cities it's getting all around the country it is it is a dishonest way to conduct business it's it, it means the money isn't real and you know i'm not a gold standard guy but you can see where they're coming from when the government is purposely just making the money into a joke so that there's no point in saving you know there's no point in trying to to live live the right way reduce debts and you know all the the, the good financial governance that you're supposed to do as an individual or as a country and that, you know so Hazlitt was writing a lot about that and I just it was I was glad you recommended that one this year because it just it happened to coincide with a lot of stuff that's going on right now and it's and what he was saying was still true then including guaranteed income mm-hmm. you know the minimum you know, universal basic income they're calling it now they had, had a different name for it back then and why it wouldn't work and 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 it did strike me as funny that the people in the sixties were talking the same sort of thing that the Andrew Yang types talk about now. 
well, technology now, it's different than it was before. It's going to put millions out of work and there'll be no new jobs. And there's just going to be a permanent underclass of unemployed people. <laughs> and they were saying this 50 years ago and it didn't come true. That's great. Like, like technology has always dis- displaced workers. It's also always created new jobs. It's, you know, it, 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 displaces, it displaces some of the dirtiest and hardest and, and most dangerous work. And it often replaces it with work that's, you know, maybe it's boring, uh, you know, a lot of desk jobs and such, but it's, it's safer. It pays better. You know, it's inside. So everyone, it's a real pessimistic attitude to, to say that, oh, there's going to be just a bunch of people in America that won't be able to do anything and they won't be able to contribute anything and we yeah. just have to just have to put them on welfare and, you know, hope for the best. So we might as well get started early and put them on welfare right away. Yeah, it's it's sad. And and hearing Hasler have to repute the same repudiate the same points in the in his day as we're doing now, it's just you know, it, it's it's like when you hear people arguing for socialism now. It's like can, do we not learn from history? Yeah. It's it's Nietzsche's uh, eternal recurrence, you know, there's no nothing new under the sun. And yeah. <laughs> these arguments about the jobs are being eliminated so fast. There just won't be jobs for anyone. And the robots are going to take over because of automation and, and these things. It's like it, almost word for almost verbatim, <laughs> the same argument from the sixties is today. So we're, we're all hearing those. I, it's died down a little bit. Um, but prior to COVID, I, I feel like there was just a growing concern, um, about, about the, the fate of, you know, all the, the working class who would, who would never have another job again. And, uh, yeah. And it comes back to Carney's point too, about work as formative right. for, for a good life. But putting somebody on welfare doesn't teach him anything about work. I mean, you know, showing up to a job every day teaches you how to be a, a, a grown adult. It teaches you how to take care of your responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And that's more important even than just the, it says the paycheck is the reason you work, but the things you learn there also serve you as being a full member of the community as being a full adult and Mm -hmm. they just don't see that so i think a a related book uh about capitalism and and hard work and the the american way we read we read uh turner's uh book on the on the frontier and what that meant for america which i mean it just felt like there couldn't be anything more american than than this book you know than the frontier Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i think Many Americans. I mean, maybe uh, this is this is changing. We discussed it during the episode, but uh, at least when I was growing up, we identified, you know, very directly with with the frontier. Of course, I grew up in the West or whatever. But he says the existence of an area of free land, its continuous recession, and the advance of American settlement westward that explains American development. The peculiarity of American institutions is the fact that they have been compelled to adapt themselves to the changes of an expanding people to the changes involved in crossing a continent and winning a wilderness. And we talked at length about how at, at each stage, it, the, I mean, there was a, a continuous border, a continuous frontier starting, you know, uh, in the Midwest and then moving westward over the course of a hundred years or so. And it was hard work. It was kind of a, a Protestant ethic of wake up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It was, mm-hmm capitalism in its purest form like there it is go take it it's there if you want it but you got to go take it and uh and and hard work and and then the people who came in behind are like well we're not quite as adventurous but 
we are some somewhat adventurous so we'll you know build the towns in your wake and and uh and you know build a community and that sort of thing pretty cool book and and very uh inspiring in a lot of ways oh yeah i agree and yeah we probably didn't uh focus on the frontier as much uh back east in my upbringing but it was it was definitely a even in in my you know history classes and and whatnot it was it was a focus it was because that's it, what made us different you know the and this idea of it was sort of an outlet to the to the frustrations of settled life and you know if you were in europe and you were frustrated with your lot and you know you had a, a job you hated or or no job at all and there was no place to go not within your own country you could come to america you know, it could come to canada maybe or australia but here we had that you know if somebody's sitting in you know you emigrated into manhattan and it's you know it's crowded and stinking and you know in all the that sort of unpleasantness of 19th century cities uh you could say you know what i'm done i'm taking off and there was that 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 idea of the second chance that i'm just gonna go out there and start over you know and you got you're like you said you've got to work for it it's it, it it sort of lent a truth to the American ideal. You know, you might back in the old world work all year round every day and not have anything to show for it, but that wasn't true here. If you wanted to take that chance and and you know break your back for a while, busting the sod and, and putting in a crop, and and you you could do it. It made America what it is. So you know, Turner's writing about the closing of the frontier and what does that mean? You know, how did it? And I think we talked about this in the episode is there was still some of that in America. There was still that freedom because our, our class structure wasn't rigid like it was in the old world. And our, you know, we had this idea, we had this ideal of uh, people being able to pull themselves up. And so when someone did it, we welcomed it. Whereas in the, in the old world, oh, somebody might get rich, but he's not going to be an aristocrat. He doesn't have the right blood or the right coat of arms. You know, we didn't care about that here. And, I think that still endures for the most part. I think some of the some of the heavy credentialing of today of the right schools, right crowd, right you know, right grades, right connections. It's sort of ossifying our culture in a way that seems, frankly, un-American. The idea that so many people—I mean, you look at who sits on our courts. They all went to the same schools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that didn't used to be the way. I mean, Abe Lincoln was one of the best lawyers of his day, and he barely went to school. Right. Now, we're not going to have that exact thing anymore because he was on the frontier in a way that doesn't exist anymore. There's schools everywhere. But still, the idea, you know, this guy could come out of nowhere, Illinois, and become a, a railroad lawyer and a congressman and all these other things and eventually president. And, and, he rose by his intellect. He rose by his hard work. So I, I, I feel like we are getting a little more, even a further step removed from how it was not that long ago in, in the sort of hardening of these class lines and these things. But I, I still think Jackson's vision of what makes America different still makes us a bit different from Europe. It's just not as much as before. I, I think you make a good point about, especially about the Supreme Court, and I wish the president would pick someone who went to a completely different school and that sort of thing. But I do think, 
I guess I, I also am a believer that, that these, that going to Harvard or something like that is pretty overrated relative to the lives of the vast majority of people. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're a talented person, then whether you go to Harvard or go to Rutgers or whatever, you're you're probably going to still do pretty well. You're going to do fine. You know, you're, you're going to do well, maybe not achieve as much as you would have if you, if had you gone to Yale or something like that, but you're still going to do pretty darn well, I think. But so I, I, I do think that the, the promise of America is still, is still available. And, um, and I, I, I recognize that talent is not distributed evenly and, and nor is, uh, you know, uh, your upbringings, you know, some have better than others and, and, and stations, uh, to begin life at the starting track, totally recognizing all that yet. Uh, I, I mean, I personally though, just really reject this, this deep cynicism and nihilism about if, uh, you know, you're the, where you're born and the color of your skin basically determines your entire life. I just, I just don't believe that. I don't, I don't buy into it. Yes, it would, it, it offers, you know, more or less, um, degrees of advantage at, at times, um, in certain situations. But I think that if you're relatively intelligent, and you want to work hard, that you can succeed. You can have a good life. You know, are you going to be a multimillionaire? Well, maybe not. But um, you know, you can start a plumbing business today, and and uh, by the time you retire, retire as a millionaire. I mean, I, I think that is totally possible and available to to a lot of different people. I think that credentialing is a barrier for sure when it comes to the professions and maybe the most elite circles. Uh, that run this, this, uh, the institutions and sort of the cultural, um, you know, kind of the, 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 the cultural, uh, locked gates, you know, in America of Hollywood or, or federal government, particularly, um, I mean, it's the Democrats, honestly, that, that are the most, uh, keen on having credentialed people working in the white house or working in, you know, in high places of government. I mean, it's, it's much less true about Republicans. So. No, I, I agree. America is still America. It's still a place you can achieve by hard work. And that's why people keep coming here and trying to do it. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think there is some more. I think we're, we need to stay vigilant against that sort of uh, self-classification that is happening. I mean, but we're still better off than, I mean, in, in France, if you want to get ahead in government and you didn't go to the, uh, the ENA, the uh, national, uh, national school of administration it's like you're out in the cold like that's that that's the uh that's the elite academy for government people and if you don't go there well you know you take your chances we don't have anything like that we don't have a national university really you know we've got a bunch of good schools yeah there's still plenty of you don't have to be you don't have to check a million elite boxes to get ahead but it i think i i think like you said, at the high levels, it, it matters too much. But for, for most folks, you can have a good life and it, you don't need to be a member of any kind of aristocracy. So we, we, we are still better off than countries where that's not the case. All right. What's your closing thoughts for season five? Well, I mean, we're kind of all over the place this season. I, I don't know if there's a, a full-on theme, but just looking into, uh, as we have been for 
80 some episodes what what is it to be a conservative uh it's still uh it's an ongoing question it's even more ongoing now as conservative politicians and voters try and sort themselves out after 2020 what does it mean where is it going um i think i think we're hearing some maybe re-emerging voices of traditional conservatism that were kind of in the background more um, more of the stuff that Roger Scruton talked about, I think is coming alive in American conservatism and we're having to deal with a lot of the, the same issues they are around the world of the shattering of elite consensus. And where do we go from here? Where, what kind of a, a world are we living in? What kind of political decisions are we going to make based on this just new diffusion of authority? And uh, I, I think Gurry had a good take on it, but even he didn't know where it's going to end up. And I, I don't, I certainly don't either. But uh, there's still plenty more to explore. For sure, and it's so unpredictable. And there's there's a, a new turn, right? Or you know, heading our way. I it almost feels like. And I agree. Like most of our most of our seasons, it seems like we were able to pull together a little bit more of a theme that that kind of emerged. Where this this season. We went, we went in different corners, you know, with Adrian Vermeule, with the, the John Birch Society, with Carl Schmidt, which uh, we didn't really talk about today. But these, these different authors that are, that are occupying different uh, corners of conservatism. So we just, I think we did a little bit more searching and finding and really exploring of the kind of the outskirts of, of conservative thought. So that said, uh, you know, we've, we've definitely covered covered this question of the working class and Trump voters sort of thing. We've, uh, we've read multiple books on that. And I think that's probably the most in vogue and in fashion. So I suspect we'll potentially read more, but it's been a good season, fun books. Yep. Uh, so we'll, we'll be back. We're going to, we're going to take a break. We're going to recharge our batteries. So we'll be off for, uh, for a handful of weeks and then we'll be back with some more conservative or hopefully interesting books.